It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's Nathan Johnson. Well, on these Thursday mornings, we're walking through a little Bible survey, and uh, we're about halfway through, a little past halfway, and uh, we're kind of in a fun section today in that we're talking about the kingdom in waiting. So just kind of give some uh, background, if you will. Uh, We've been walking through this idea that God established a kingdom, and that as humanity, we rebelled, we shook our fist at God's face, and we rebelled against that kingdom. And then ever since that point, God has been aggressively going after his people, trying to woo them in and prepare them for the coming of the king, uh, which we're going to get to actually next week. So last week, we were talking about the prophets and the fact that here is uh, here is God, he uh, establishes the kings in the kingdom of, of Israel, and he starts sending prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, making these bold declarations, and as we mentioned last week, there was this prophetic stuff in terms of the, the Messiah, uh, there was declarations in terms of uh, future events like the fall of Assyria or the taking of Jerusalem, but then a major portion of the prophetic announcement uh, is, is this whole idea of a call to repentance. And the prophets just were consistently saying, repent, 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 turn back to God. Well, at this period of time, as we get out of this season, uh, we know that uh, Syria falls and is taken over by Babylon. And eventually Babylon, who's the world power, falls to the Persians and the Medes. Uh, So here's Cyrus, he comes in, and of course this is the time of Daniel. And then eventually uh, Persia falls, right, and Alexander comes in. We're in that time period and so after the, fall of, or at, at, after the fall of Assyria and Babylon is the big world power, again, Babylon comes in, takes Daniel and uh, his, his buddies, he takes Jerusalem and brings them into Babylon. And for those 70 years that they're in captivity, you realize that there's this anxious, there's a longing to get out of captivity. And the moment they're out of captivity and Cyrus frees the Israelites to go back, we have this short time period where you have like the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the temple and and the, the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. But then we also have uh, the story of Esther, and of course the whole thing with the Persian king there. But we fall into this time period that we typically call the 400 years of silence. And it's interesting that we call it the 400 years of silence, and we, we call it that way because there is no major prophetic voice. There is no major, thus saith the Lord kind of stuff. But it's not silent. And I always find this interesting that we call it the 400 years of silence because from the time of Malachi or the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, that time period, to the time of Jesus, there's 400 years approximately. But in those 400 years, even though there is no major prophetic voice, God is aggressively preparing for something. It's, it's almost like that, that hush before a big storm where, you know, there's, it's really windy and then suddenly it gets really quiet. And you're like, oh, it's gone. And then there's even a greater wave. It's almost like that kind of a tone where there is 400 years of quote-unquote silence, and again, no prophet, prophetic voices, and yet it's not a silent period. It's actually a preparation period. So what I want to do this morning is just kind of walk through. I want to talk through four key people or events that took place during these 400 years of silence. Now, again, we don't have much in Scripture about this time period. Uh, the end of the Old Testament ends with the whole stories of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Chronologically, at least, they end in that period of time. Uh, We have Malachi or Malachi, the Italian prophet. He's not really Italian, but it just sounds fun. right? So we have Malachi, who's just kind of the final prophet before this time period. And we really don't have much going on in those 400 years in terms of Scripture. As you come into the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, you you have this 
there's tenors, there's these ideas that kind of poke back to the fact that, yes, yeah, something happened back there. But in terms of what we have in Scripture, we don't have a lot during this time period. But what happened during this time period is literally setting the stage for the coming of Christ. And so I just want to walk again through these four people or these four events, which I think will help us understand the coming of the king even better as we get into it next week. Number one, I'm going to call him the conqueror, which is all about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was absolutely brilliant in terms of military strategy. Uh, he, he, he's ranked up there in probably one of the top military guys of all time. Of course, you have like guys like Napoleon as well. But Alexander the Great, he's this young man. He walks in. He takes over the, the kingdom um, of his father uh, in Greece. He literally goes into the known world and literally conquers the entire known world, stretches the boundaries further than it's ever been stretched. And, of course, the audacity of this man is absolutely insane. Uh, one of the, my favorite stories, perhaps, of Alexander the Great is Alexander the Great comes into this pagan nation, and they're surrounding the nation, and, and basically he sends an emissary in and says, surrender. And the man says, why would we surrender? We have never fallen to any enemy. And Alexander the Great says, because I can take you. And the man says, no one's ever taken us. So Alexander the Great looks at one of his generals and says, send the men. And there was this cliff right outside the city, and his men just, with calm, just started walking right off the cliff to their desks. One after another, after another. And after about 20 or so people, the man in the, the citadel says, stop, 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 we'll surrender. Realizing that if Alexander the Great's men were so willing to just brave, bravely die at the command of Alexander, they're not going to stop, you know, taking the city in a sense. So, I mean, Alexander was just, he was audacious. He was just, he was arrogant. He was just, and yet what happened because of Alexander the Great was a brilliant, in my mind, so brilliant of God for what he was doing to set the stage for Jesus Christ. Because of Alexander the Great, and here's Alexander the Greek coming into the known world and conquering the entire known world and stretching its boundaries even further, one of the big things that Alexander brought is what we would typically call Hellenism, which was this idea of causing the known world to really take on Greek influence and language. So here's Alexander the Great. He would come and conquer this place, and the moment he conquered him, he would say, great, now you have to learn Greek. Because that is our language, and because we're in charge of you, you have to know this thing. So Greek became the world language of the day. And Greek was basically the, uh, maybe say it this way, every place had their original language, but Greek was the commerce language of that day. So just like in our world today, uh, English, for better or for worse, is the commerce language. So if you're going to do business, most people learn English. Why? Because that's the major commerce language of our world. So in other countries, right, they're, they're learning English besides their original language. Why? Well, because it's the commerce language. It's that kind of an idea. And I don't know if you recognize how brilliant that is, but during the height of Hellenism, God brings the Messiah on the stage. And you're like, well, why would that be significant? Well, it's significant because <clears throat> here's the disciples. They know Greek, and they know Hebrew and Aramaic and all that kind of stuff too, but the moment that Jesus rises from the dead and he ascends into heaven— and he says, go and proclaim the news. Do you realize that the world was set up for that? That they could literally march into any place in the entire known world, literally go into the street corner, proclaim Jesus in Greek, and everyone would know what they're saying. It was brilliant. And Greek as a language has a lot of depth to it. It's actually a really profound language. And every, it's a, uh, the language is not only a thick language, but it's also a picturesque language where every word just paints beautiful pictures. And it is the height of all of that time that the New Testament shows up on the stage. I just think that is brilliant for God. 
that, that the time when the Greek language, and again, it's a very picturesque language, it's a very deep language, comes on the scene, that is the time when Jesus Christ comes on the scene. I think that's beautiful. And it's all because of Alexander the Great. And again, he's a pagan guy that God is using for his purpose in his plan. Uh, the second group I just want to talk about really quick is what I'm going to call the defenders, which would be like the Maccabees, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Apparently anything that ends with double E's uh, and an S, you know, just, anyway, that group. Uh, <clears throat> and we don't have time to get into all of this. But during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, at, at the end of, you know, the Babylonian captivity, and Ezra and Nehemiah are reestablishing the whole Jerusalem thing, it's interesting, one of the passions that Ezra had is coming back to the authority of the word. And what came out of that whole season of the Ezra and Nehemiah thing was this group who were zealously defending the word of God. And over the course of those 400 years, this group known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees rose up as people who were greatly coming back to the word of God saying, hey, we need to live according to this thing. Now, the problem they had <laughs> was the fact that it was not motivated out of love. It was not motivated out of uh, any sort of depth of spirituality. It was motivated out of legalism and trying to cross every T and dot every I. And so what happened is by the time you got to the time of Jesus, you had this group of people who were so obsessed with the law that they missed the whole meaning of the law. For example, Jesus went up to the Pharisees and he said this great statement. He says, you tithe, you know, you tithe mint and you tithe, you know, you, you, you take these herbs and you tithe on the herbs. But you've forgotten the most important aspects of the law, which is mercy and love and grace. And of course, what the Pharisees were doing is uh, they, they, they had a little mint plant and they go, oh, I'm going to make some mint tea. So they take a mint leaf off of the mint tree, and they put it down on their kitchen table, and they have to tithe on that mint leaf. And so they would cut that mint leaf into ten little sections. Why? So they could take one of those sections and tithe that section down to the temple or down to the synagogue. And so they would, take, they would tithe on the mint leaf. And in other words, what Jesus is saying is, hey, you become so obsessed with the nitty-gritty aspects of the law that you actually forget the whole point of the law, which was mercy and love, and righteousness. So, it's not, that, it's not that their original place was wrong, because, hey, they had a good heart. They wanted to defend the word of God. They wanted religious, you know, they wanted a fervor to come back. They wanted a purity in terms of the word, which I think that's, that's really good. That's what I want. And yet, they became so focused on the, well, how are we going to measure this? And, of course, you know, they took the law, and they made th uh, 600 and, remember what it is, 630? I forgot the number, but 600 and something uh, oral traditions based on the law. So here's what the law says. Well, what does that mean? Well, we're going to have 630 traditions. Uh, for example, the law says, do not work on the Sabbath. Amen. But what does that mean? And so the Pharisee says, well, oral tradition. Uh, it means you can only walk this far. So if you walk one step beyond that, you're doing work. But obviously you have to, you have to walk, walk somewhere. So we have to give some allowance for walking. Uh, you, you cannot, uh, you, you cannot uh, go to the well and get water out of the well. Why? Because if you take your bucket and go down to the well and you tie a rope onto the bucket, that's work. Oh, I forgot water. It's a Sabbath day. What do I do? Well, I can't go to the well and tie a rope onto the bucket because that's, hey, that's breaking the law. But it is okay for a woman on the Sabbath to tie her garter. So, if I forgot to draw my water, I can go down to the well. This is the stupidest thing. 
They can go down to the well and tie a woman's garter to the bucket and lower the bucket down into the well so they can get water. That's permissible. Well, why? Well, because that's, that's not breaking the oral law. Isn't this stupid? So we have the law, and what the, again, again, I think the desire of the Pharisees and the Sadducees was good, but they went berserko, even to this day. Do you know that the, the high Orthodox Jews in, Jerusalem, uh, in Israel still live this way? They, they, have, hey, they have all these laws to say, okay, what does this mean? How do we apply that? Uh, the very first time I was in Israel, uh, we were in this really nice hotel in Jerusalem, and about halfway through the, the time we were there, there, we were there about five days, about halfway through the time, there was this, I don't know, there's something going on in the hallway. We, it was like a dead animal. I mean, it was, it, was, it was such a horrible stench. It was so bad. And we went up to the hotel. People, we don't know what's going on, but I, there must be something wrong in this, in this hallway. Come to find out what it was is that, well, this particular hotel, a lot of the Jews during the Sabbath days, instead of, you know, doing all the Sabbath stuff at home, will just go to a hotel. And the reason is, is then you don't have to cook the food and you don't have to do all the, you know, you don't have to make your house religiously appropriate. You can just go to a hotel, and the hotel will serve you the right food and all this kind of stuff, and of course, they have the Shabbat elevator, which means you get in, and pushing a button on the elevator is work. So you don't push buttons. They just, it stops at every floor on, on Shabbat. So on Shabbat, you don't ever get in the Shabbat elevator because it takes you forever to get everywhere, right? Because it, it'll stop and open the doors at every... So you don't have to push the button. But what we found out is in that hallway, that's where some of the, these Orthodox Jews were living, and they considered it work to flush a toilet. And so what they would do is they would be there all weekend and they would use the bathroom, but they would never flush the toilet. Why? Because that's work. Now, I, I don't know who cleaned up these rooms afterwards. It would be horrible. But do you realize how insane some of this stuff is? Uh, even to this day, I was talking to uh, this uh, Christian who lived in Israel, and she says, I have a good Jewish friend, and, and on the holidays, you cannot have yeast in the house. So you usually have to clean out the yeast of the house, right, because that's, that's the tradition. I mean, that's, that's the law. But instead of call, uh, getting rid of the yeast, she will get a call from her Jewish friend that says, hey, uh, I've got some yeast. I've got about this much yeast. Could I sell it to you for a dollar? And she says, sure, I would love to buy that much yeast for a dollar. Now, do they ever exchange money? No. Do they ever exchange yeast? No. But because it's no longer the Jew's yeast, she can keep it in the house because it's not her yeast. And this dumb? And then after the holiday, she'll call up her friend and say, hey, I need about this much cheese. Can I buy it from you from a dollar? She's like, yeah, sure. Now, that is insane. Personally, I think that's insane. So again, the whole, the whole, the whole point of this is, is it's during these 400 years that the Pharisees and the Sadducees rose up. And again, I think they started with a pure motive, with a desire of, hey, I want to come after, I want to go after God. I want to have a religious purity. I want to come back to the authority of the word. But what happened during those 400 years is it was setting the stage for the time that Jesus showed up. And here's Jesus. He's now encountering this group of people who are so fanatical about the law that they missed the whole point of the law, according to Jesus. So that was happening during these 400 years, as well as this group called the Maccabees, who, and I'll let you study it out. But basically, there's a big Maccabean revolt. Uh, they went in, they cleaned out the temple and all this kind of stuff, uh, which is where we get Hanukkah, the, the celebration of Hanukkah, came during this same time. And it's interesting, there's several passages in the New Testament that reference this festival of lights, Hanukkah. And Jesus actually was participating in Hanukkah, which is kind of a fun idea. Uh, so during these 400 years, again, we had this group called the Defenders. Uh, we had this guy, who I'm going to call, number three, the Megalomaniac, which is such a great term. 
uh, a megalomaniac, I've never heard that term before until this last time I was in, uh, last time I was in Israel, but we were talking about Herod the Great, and during these 400 years, Herod the Great came on the scene, and he became the prominent figure in Israel. And several scholars have coined him uh, with a term, he was a megalomaniac. In other words, a megalomaniac is a narcissist on steroids, if you will, if that's even possible. So I'm calling it a narcissism mixed with bigger and better. So here's Herod the Great. And Herod the Great, uh, he, he really wasn't a Jew. He wasn't really a Roman. He, he's kind of this, he was this kind of funny figure. And he decides that he would love to kind of control Israel. So he goes over to Rome and looks at Caesar and says, Caesar, I will, hey, I will settle all these problems in Israel. Let me have it. You give me the authority, and I will establish a new kingdom, basically. And so Caesar, down in Rome, says, hey, sure, go ahead. And Herod comes in and basically, if you will, with the power of Rome, takes over Israel. So now here is Herod, and we call him Herod the Great. And he really was. Herod the Great was absolutely brilliant on so many ways. And he was absolutely evil and vile in so many ways. Uh, trying to figure out the best person even to compare him to. I've been pondering this for a long time. He's, he's almost on the level of like a Hitler in terms of his evil wickedness, but yet he is absolutely brilliant in terms of like, I don't know a good comparison in that sense, uh, but in terms of engineering, engineers today look back at what Herod the Great pulled off and said what he did is actually impossible, that we can't even do what he did in, with all of our technology today. Like he literally was absolutely brilliant. Now one of the things that caused Herod some problems is the fact that he was, a, again, a megalomaniac, meaning he would look at something and he wouldn't just say, well, I want to improve it. When Herod saw something, he had to improve it. And it had to be the biggest, the greatest, the best of the entire world. So everything that Herod did was over the top and extreme. Now, it's interesting because he took Israel and geographically we, we've We've talked about this a little bit. But Israel is at the little, the crossroads of the known world. So in terms of trade and commerce, Israel is actually the, a key strategic place. And the reality, and again, this, is, this helps understand a lot of the Old Testament, but whoever controls Israel controls the money. Whoever controls Israel controls commerce throughout the known world. So the reason why there's so many battles in the Old Testament is because they're going after the trade routes. Why did Solomon become so rich and wealthy? Well, it's because the moment he came into Israel in terms of his power, he literally went after the trade route. And the moment he had the trade route of the known world, Solomon became incredibly wealthy. Well, that's what Herod the Great did. Herod the Great came in and started taxing everybody who went through Israel. And because Israel is literally the crossroads for Europe, Africa, and Asia, he was making crazy money. And as such, he had money to finance his crazy dreams. So, again, <clears throat> here's the megalomaniac. And he had this desire of saying, okay, he, everywhere he went, he's like, all right, I'm going to big something, I'm going to build something bigger and better and the greatest in the entire known world. And he did. Over and over and over again, he would come into a location and so change it that it was, it was the greatest during his day. Uh, it's interesting, again, I, I mentioned the fact that he was incredibly wicked. Uh, Caesar, I think it was Caesar, made the comment about Herod the Great. And he said it was actually safer to be a pig in the courts of Herod than it would be to be one of Herod's sons. In other words, Herod was so threatened by everybody. Uh, Herod had this, again, he was a narcissist in that sense, but he, he, he had such a control, 
uh, he was a control freak. And because of such, anything that threatened his, his control and his authority, he would kill. So if he had a son who sounded like he was going to rise up and, you know, take a position, Herod would just kill the son. And so, see, I think it was Caesar. Caesar, looking at this whole thing, said, actually, if you were a pig, you actually had a better chance of living longer than if you were one of Herod's sons. Isn't that insane? Like, that's, that's not healthy. <laughs> like, that's not good. Uh, Herod the Great, by the way, just as a reminder, is the one who, uh, when Christ was born, was questioning the, the wise men and found out about the, around, around the same time, about, about the time that Jesus would have been born and that kind of stuff. And he went into Bethlehem and literally killed all the, the boys who were two years and younger. It, it, was, it was that threat thing, right? This is Herod the Great. And this, it's in the middle of this that Jesus Christ shows up on the scene. But just for some quick fun here, and sorry if you're listening to the podcast because you don't get to see the pictures. Uh, one of the great feats that Herod built was this place called Caesarea. And this is what it looks like now. <clears throat> but if you see this dark line in the, in the water here, Caesarea is, a, is on the Mediterranean. And what Herod the Great did is he built a deep water port in Caesarea. And the reason being is, if he wants the major trade from the ships, you have to have a deep water port. And so one of, one of the things he did then is he took Caesarea and said, all right, I'm going to build a deep water port. Now, engineers, even to this day, look at what he did and said, you can't build a deep water port there. And Herod the Great says, well, I'm going to do it. And as a truly, a truly brilliant engineer, he figured out a way where he built a harbor that went out into the Mediterranean so he could have a deep water port. And what he basically did is he, he came up with this idea of making cement in the old days in the harbor. Now, the problem is, is in today's world, you know, we'd put this like wall around it and drain the water, and then we'd have space to, to build. Well, they don't have that kind of technology. All they can do is, well, you have to put something directly down into the water. But it has to be light enough to get it out into the water. And so he ended up mixing all this stuff like volcanic ash with, I forgot what this other thing is, and when it mixes with water, it literally becomes cement. And so they would pull it out on these little ships, they would uh, sink these things, and as it sunk, it became cement. And he literally built an entire uh, port a uh, marina, if you will, out here. Well, you can't have a deep water port without entertainment because as you have all these people coming into your, uh, into your deep water port and they're going to spend a couple of days as the boats are, you know, uh, things are taken off the boat, things are put on the boat, well, what are they going to do? So Herod, in his brilliance, created a huge amphitheater. Or I guess it's a theater because it's only a half. But anyway, it's a, it's a, a, a theater. By the way, this is the same place where Paul was in prison for two to three years. And when he was speaking to King Agrippa and all those guys and Festus, uh, it's likely at that same theater uh, uh, that, that, that Paul would have been spoken. Uh, by the way, this is where Philip, uh, the evangelist in the New Testament, this is where he spent most of his life in ministry, is in Caesarea. Uh, anyway, he, he built this huge theater. He has this massive hippodrome, which is where they would race the horses and that kind of thing. But what's interesting is Herod the Great built his palace on the edge of the Mediterranean. This is this huge palace right on the edge. Now, as the megalomaniac, he just can't have a normal palace because that would make too much sense. And that would be way too easy. So as is, I need the biggest and the greatest in the entire known world, Herod the Great built this massive palace. And then he decides, I want a swimming pool. And I don't have, you can't see it on the picture, but here's, a little, here's the Mediterranean coast. Here's the palace. And right off the palace in the Mediterranean Sea, there's this freshwater swimming pool. So he was literally trucking freshwater in from the Carmel Mountains, you know, I think it was like nine, ten miles, down this aqueduct that he built 
Okay, so here's the aqueduct, and it's perfectly engineered so that the water can come off the Carmel Mountain Range, flow the, I think it's, it's a 9 or 17 miles, it's somewhere between there, uh, down this range to get to Caesarea, so they actually have fresh water. But then Herod, in his arrogance, says, I want a swimming pool in the Mediterranean Sea, but I want it fresh water. So he built the, the, the swimming pool in the Mediterranean. Isn't this crazy? And by the way, you can still see the tiles of the, of the floor uh, if you go to Caesarea today, uh, of the swimming pool, which is pretty cool. Uh, there's this place called Herodium. No, sorry, that's not, that's misspelled. This, this is Masada. But next to the Dead Sea, there's this mountain called Masada. And, and it's hard to see, but de- the Dead Sea is the lowest place on the planet in terms of uh, feet above or below uh, <coughs> sea level. But Herodium, oh, sorry, I keep saying that, uh, Masada this mountain, I think, is 1,500 feet high, and it's still, the very top of it is still below sea level, okay? But what's interesting is this mountain just kind of, kind of sits itself aside from all the other mountains, and it's literally the perfect, um, what would you want to say? It's like the getaway location in case you're ever in trouble. So what Herod decided to do is that he took this mountain, and he built a fortress on the top. And he only stocked it with all these goods, and you could like, live up there for about three years with all the, all the water and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and there's only one entrance up there, which is this little switch back all the way up to the top. But he says, if I ever get in trouble and I need to run to Masada, I want a palace. So what he does, that's what it looks like, is down the cliff face of Masada, he builds a three-tier palace down the edge of it. And that way, if he ever has to escape to Masada, he at least can have this grand palace that's set aside from the rest of the troops. Again, it's this whole megalomaniac thing. And then he has Herodium, which he decides saying, well, I, I want to have a good burial plot. By the way, he, he, oh, there's a ton of locations throughout Israel that Herod built, like the temple and all this kind of stuff. But Herodium is interesting. He, he wanted this burial plot, but he wanted to commemorate the fact that uh, earlier on in his life, his mother was in this chariot. The chariot flips. She almost dies. And he wanted to commemorate the fact of that location because obviously the gods protected her. So what he did is he says, well, I, w- I don't want to just be buried in the ground. I want a mountain. So he literally moves a mountain to the location where his mother's chariot flips so that he can have a burial plot. So this mountain right here is actually not a real mountain. It is a brought over mountain. Herod literally moved a mountain so he could have a burial plot. By the way, it's an interesting thought that when Jesus talks about the fact that if you have the faith as small as, small as a grain of mustard, uh, as small as a grain of mustard seed, that doesn't sound right. As, anyway, you know what I'm talking about. As small as a mustard seed. I guess grain and seed is a duplicate. So, so if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, that sounds far better, you can look at this mountain and say, move from here to there, and it will move. Do you know what was actually, if you actually look at where he was actually saying that, do you know what was in the background? This. And it's interesting that what they would have been seeing is Herodium going, well, we know that Herod did that with all these slaves. And yet in the background of what Jesus is saying is, hey, if you just have the faith as small as a mustard seed, you could just say the amount to move to here to there, and it will move. Isn't that interesting? Just an interesting insight. So you have Herod then, Herod the Great, who is like during this time of the 400 years of silence that is setting the stage for the time of Jesus. So again, all of the corruption and all of the twistedness and all of the vileness and all of the wickedness that Herod had. In fact, one of the things that Herod said on his deathbed is he says, when I die, I want you to go across the land of Israel and kill all these people. He had a whole list. 
And the reason is, is I want someone to mourn on the day that I die. And I know that they're not going to mourn. So the way I'm going to force them to mourn is I'm going to really kill a whole, a whole portion of Israel so that there will be wailing in Israel over my death. I mean, this man was wicked, wicked, wicked. And this is what Jesus was birthed into. So think about this. Here's these 400 years of silence, quote unquote. And of course, God is preparing the stage for the coming of the king. And we have all this stuff happening. Of course, we have the Hellenism with Alexander the Great. We have the defenders, the whole Maccabees, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. We have this megalomaniac, Herod the Great. And they're all setting the stage for this moment in time when Jesus is going to show up as a little babe. Do you realize how hard it must have been for the Jews to be waiting these 400 years with this expectancy saying, God has to be doing something, but there is no prophetic voice, and what is he up to? And, and then Herod the Great comes on the scene, and it is so wicked and so vile. It just makes the waiting all that much harder. And then lastly, the announcer, uh, who is John the Baptist. You realize John the Baptist is the bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Uh, Jesus says that John the Baptist was the greatest the Old Testament could have produced. In terms of the righteousness of the law, in terms of the best the Old Testament has, that was John the Baptist. And what was John the Baptist doing? John the Baptist was coming on the stage. He was declaring forth two things. One, he was declaring the good news, the coming of the Messiah, and he was also a call of repentance. And John the Baptist, again, was setting the stage for the coming of the king, which we're going to talk about next week. So here's just the question after all this. Again, we don't have much in Scripture about these 400 years outside of these things that are influencing the New Testament by the time we get into Matthew chapter 1. But the question is, is just as they had to wait for 400 years for the coming of the king, and there was an expectancy, do you realize there was a whole bunch of different ways that they were waiting? You have the Pharisees who became very legalistic and said, okay, well, if we're going to wait, we're going to have to dot every I and cross every T and bring it really nitty-gritty on this thing. And you have people like Herod the Great who just said, I'm going to live for myself, I'm going to be the selfish... You have a guy like John the Baptist who was just declaring, declaring, declaring. So my question is, how are you waiting? Because we have the king, and yet we're, we, 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 but we are waiting for the return of the king. And you realize that we are in a season that may even feel silent. So my question is, how are we living in light of the fact that we know the king? How are we living in light of the fact of all this? And if I could just give you a proposal... If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 2, it's interesting. I, I love what Luke includes. Luke is the only gospel that includes this. But Luke is talking about the fact that here's Jesus. He is born. <clears throat> He's taken down to the temple on the eighth day to be circumcised. And down at the temple, there are these two characters that come on the scene. One of them is Simeon, found in verse 25 of chapter 2 of Luke. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It was revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so he comes in the temple led by the Holy Spirit, and the parents of Jesus come and, and show him Jesus, and he really takes a child, lifts him up in the hand, and gives this great praise declaration. And right after this, it says that uh, Joseph and Mary were rather amazed. And in verse 36, there was Anna the prophetess, uh, she was of great age and lived with her husband for seven years from her virginity, but she was a widow for 84 years, and she did not depart from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming at that moment, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all who looked for the redemption of, his, uh, redemption of Jerusalem. 
Do you realize that that should be our disposition even now? We have the king. And we can now have a season of waiting for the return of the king with joy and expectancy and delight. So I can just encourage you. It's interesting that we must realize that even though, uh, how should I say this? Even though it's not a biblical account, in other words, there's not a book of the Bible that says, let's talk about Herod the Great or Alexander or those kind of things. You realize that there's a lot that God is using, that God is like taking history and manipulating it. Maybe it's a strong, too strong a word. But God is leveraging the paganism and the history of the world to bring about a time when it's perfect for the Messiah. The fact that the Persians showed up right before Alexander the Great is brilliant because the Persians invented crucifixion. But the Romans perfected it. And it's at the height of, that, of, of crucifixion that Jesus comes on the stage, uh, stage. It's at the height of Hellenism in the Greek language that Jesus comes on the, on the stage. It comes at the point that right when it seems like Israel is just in this death grip of paganism and just hatred and vileness and, and this evil of King Herod, Jesus comes on the stage. And it's like all of this is setting the stage. God is leveraging all this stuff to bring about Jesus Christ and his goodness. And I think we need to remember, and we've been walking through this a lot in the Daily Thunders, but we need to remember that God is working all things for his good. That he is leveraging history. He's leveraging these pagan, pagan wicked guys. He's, he's leveraging all this stuff to bring forth a greater glory of Jesus Christ. And I think we need to remember that even in our day. Because even though we're not in this specific season, we are in a season of waiting of, of one sort. And regardless, we must recognize that if God was willing to leverage this season for the coming of the Christ, what is he wanting to do in this day and age to leverage the glory of Jesus Christ in and through our lives? Well, next week we're going to talk about the actual coming of the king and talking about Jesus himself. I'm very excited. But uh, let's just pray. Lord, we love you. And Lord, I am so in awe of the fact that even though we call them 400 years of silence, they were anything but silent. And though it may have looked, though it may have looked like from an outside perspective that there was things that were just going horribly wrong, Lord, you were leveraging all of that for your purpose, for your plan, and for your glory. Lord, would you remind us afresh that what you are doing in this day and age, though it may look dark, and though we are in a season of waiting, and even though it seems like there's all this stuff swirling about us, that you are leveraging all of this for your purpose, for your plan, and for your glory, that you do work all things for the, for the good of those who love you and who are called according to your purpose and plan. Lord, I pray that we would have an expectancy like Simeon and Anna, that we would have this longing, that there would be just this, this desire to be, in, to be in your presence and to see the fullness of you realized. Lord, thank you for yourself. Thank you for Jesus. We just declare that you are good and your mercies endure forever. And Lord, in the season of waiting, may we wait properly. May we await with delight and intimacy and relationship with you. Just give the praise and the glory in your precious name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday morning. Join us at live.ellersley.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellersley campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person.
Thanks for listening.